0: So immediately, from the very first sentence, Mark set out to make something clear. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, he worked in this man that was a failure, John Mark, that had abandoned the work of the Lord because it became difficult. He turned back. He hadn't counted the cost. And yet God used this man as a companion to both Peter and Paul, taking the accounts of other faithful witnesses to record for us what it was that happened some 2,000 years ago. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of creation had been building towards this point. So much so that the angels... The shepherds, even the stars in the sky, proclaimed that this was the Christ, the Holy Son of God. That he had come to set captives free. He had come not only to announce the kingdom of God, but he had come to usher it in. And yet there were people that were enslaved, they were entrapped. So they had to be set free before they could they could dare come into this kingdom that he that he brought. There was a real enemy that needed to be fought, needed to be defeated, needed to be overcome. So as the Apostle John says, Jesus, the Son of God, he came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil, the evil one that had set about to hold these people captive, to hold on tight to that which uh, he'd been given authority over for just a time. So the confrontation, it would begin almost immediately. As Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water and immediately led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. And after 40 days of fasting and, and temptation there, he proves his dominance. He exerts his dominance over this evil one, proving that he would not lose an inch. He would not lose a battle. There would be no point at which Jesus would lose ground. At every moment, he was going to exert his dominance and his will upon this, upon this foe. So much so that he could go out and he could proclaim this good news, this gospel, and by it say, I am the king. Trust in me. I will set you free. So we continue on with that story this morning. So please stand to your feet as we return to Mark chapter one. We read verses twenty-one through twenty-eight this morning. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately they went into the sy- excuse me. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee." All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? And would you make this book live to me? To your son's precious name we pray. Amen. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. It was the Sabbath, a Saturday. A gift from God, the Sabbath was. This one day out of every seven is a healthy reminder for us that our Father, our our Father in heaven, the creator of all that is, that he labored on six days and then he rested on the seventh. It was also a healthy reminder that he doesn't need our help. Much much as the need for sleep at night, where we lay down at night and we wake up in the morning and find everything went just fine without us. It's a very humbling thing to be reminded that God doesn't need our help to keep the stars in the sky, to keep the earth in orbit to keep the sun where it's supposed to be, to keep your own body breathing, your own heart pumping. You go to sleep, he's got this. It's a reminder that we don't need to rest in our own selfish labors. It's not all about us. It's not all about what we can do, that we can rest in the sufficiency of who God is. And at the same time, we look forward to an eternal rest. We look forward to heaven. When there is no more just a weekly setting aside of rest, Look forward to heaven when we're perfectly in the presence of God, and the Sabbath was intended to be that as well. An opportunity to come into the presence of God, to spend time with God, and that's, that's what we see here. And we see that this was the regular pattern. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 tells us that this was the regular pattern of Jesus, that he would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. So we talked about synagogues during our time back in Nehemiah. You'll remember that the synagogues, they, pass, they, they kind of popped up during the exile, as the people had been led away from Jerusalem, and the temple there had been destroyed. They still needed a place. They needed, a, needed an opportunity to worship God. They needed to come together as a people. And so these synagogues, they popped up as houses of prayer, as places where people could gather together. They could read God's law. They could encourage each other. They could build each other up. This was what worship looked like. It was less about offering sacrifices on the altar in the temple and more about learning who God was and learning how they were to obey him. And then even as they returned from the exile, these the synagogues, they continued to form. And so Generally speaking, a synagogue, in order for a synagogue to form, you needed ten believing men. You needed ten men in a town in order for a synagogue to happen. That's why when we look in, uh, when we look in the book of Acts and we see Lydia out there in, in Philippi, we see Lydia by the river and she's there praying with some folks, surely that indicates to us there weren't ten believing men there. Otherwise, they would the, wouldn't have been in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And we got to see this play out. It was pretty cool um, having, having thought through this text and having thought through what it meant to need 10 believing men to have a synagogue. When we were in Israel, we were standing on the Mount of Olives, which is just a gigantic uh, cemetery. It's been a cemetery for some 3,000 years. And we're standing there, and there was a group of three people over here, and they were placing rocks on a tomb, which is their pattern, they, 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 their tradition. They placed rocks upon the tomb. And then they went over, and there was this young group of Orthodox Jewish men. You know, they had the black hats, the black outfits, and the, the curly sideburns and they went over to these men that they didn't know and they invited them to come over and stand it's because in their tradition there's certain prayers that aren't supposed to be prayed unless you have 10 believing men and so in order for them to offer the prayers that they wanted to offer here at this graveside they needed 10 other men to come and stand alongside them so that's what this that's what a synagogue was it was a it was a place where people could gather together it was also it wasn't just a place of prayer on the sabbath though it was a uh, it was a civil gathering place as well during the, during the week, people would gather together there for school, they would gather for communal meals, they would gather to have arguments uh, adjudicated, have somebody sit there, a scribe to sit there and, and judge over their disagreements, and so it really was the center of, of Jewish life in most of these towns was right there in the synagogue, and so um, while, just as you can call the church, you can talk about the church, and that's a, a group of people, right? Synagogue just means a gathering of people, just as a church is a gathering of people, and we're the church, even when we leave this place, we don't we're not crazy to call this building also a church. So when you read about a synagogue, technically it just means the gathering of people. But it also refers to this building, and that's, that's where we see that Jesus had gone. And so because synagogues were not centralized like the temple, there, there was no necessarily regulated format that they needed to take. But almost all of them, what they looked like, would have been just a big square room with benches along the edge where people could come and they could sit and they could listen and they could learn. And then many of them, they had a place. We read out in Matthew 26, we read about a place called the Moses Seat. It was much like Moses would have ruled, and he would have taught, and he would have, he would have judged out there when they were in the wilderness. This was a seat where a scribe or a Pharisee would sit. They would deliver the law. They would deliver their pronouncements on the law, and they were here cases. And so this is the place that Jesus went. And as I told you last week or the week before, I don't recall, that when we were there in Capernaum, there's a, there's, there's a synagogue standing there. It's not the original walls. It's not the original pillars. The synagogue that's there today is from something like the 3rd century um, A.D., but the, but the ground, the base, the floor there, it's the original synagogue from where Jesus entered on this day. And so we see that he was there. He not only enters into the synagogue, but it says that he begins teaching. Why in the world would they let Jesus teach? Who was he? Why would Jesus get to enter into the synagogue and then all of a sudden they hand him the pulpit? And they say, here you go, why don't you teach us? Well, it's clearly because already by this point, Jesus was seen as a rabbi. We read that back in John 1:38, Jesus turned and he saw the people following him. These were disciples of John the Baptist who had turned and followed after Jesus. He turned and he immediately said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So Rabbi simply means a teacher. This wasn't some official position with some particular authority. These were traveling men that would go about. They were familiar with the law. They had learned the law. They had learned all the arguments regarding the law. And they would travel almost like itinerant preachers. They would travel, and as we talked about, they would have disciples. They would have other learned men that would follow after them. They would come after them, and they would hear their preaching. They would hear their teaching. And in whatever town they found themselves in on the Sabbath, they would go into that town. And it was a matter of courtesy. It was a matter of, of tradition that you would allow them, that rabbi to speak, to preach on what it was that was on his heart with regards to the law. And so you can, you can certainly see as the way that God has, has orchestrated throughout all history to set up these synagogues in every town. And to set up this system where traveling rabbis are allowed to preach in whatever synagogue they go to, you can almost see how God set this very thing up for this purpose. That his son, seen as a rabbi, could then go from town to town and have a hearing within the ears of the Jewish people to hear the gospel that was proclaimed. Verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, there was another group of teachers there, and they were the scribes. And while the rabbis didn't have some particular authority, the scribes did. They had the ability to notarize documents, to write up contracts, to hear cases. These are the people certainly familiar with the law. They were the ones charged with writing out the law. We have a group they call themselves the scribes. What are they doing? They're copying out the word of God. That's what they would have done. They would have copied the books with just painstakingly accurate, taking the time to make sure that every, every single dot, every single tittle, every single part of, of what it is that, that God had written in his word, that it got recorded faithfully. So we owe some of what we, what we know about these things to scribes that had faithfully recorded God's word. And so these men, that they, they would teach, but typically they would teach mostly pointing backwards to what other rabbis had taught. So they would come and they would read the law, they would, they would read the scrolls, but then they would refer to some argument that some other rabbi had taught. And they, and they fancied themselves because they often knew all the arguments. So they would come here and they would almost just, they would just talk themselves in circles because this famous rabbi says this, but also this famous rabbi says this, never making real authoritative statements, much like the postmodern world we live in today. Right? We well, don't make any kind of stand, uh, uh, standing on rock solid authoritative statements. They would, they would teach in circles at times and often never pointed to the authority of God, but pointed to the authority of some other man or, or trying to sway people with their words, trying to convince people with their words and the strength of their argument. There was no authority behind the things that they were teaching. And so we see that Jesus didn't teach in this way. You see the response to the way that Jesus taught. You see this all throughout the Gospels that Jesus would come and he would, cre- he would preach with incredible authority. And everybody would stand in all of this because this wasn't the way that men spoke. Who can speak on behalf of God but God himself? Who can make these authoritative statements? Who can speak as if directly from the word of God? He wouldn't just read from the law. He would read from the law and then he would speak. He would make pronouncements on behalf of God preaching this new gospel that these people had never heard. No wonder it was an offense to the Pharisees. No wonder it was an offense to the scribes because he didn't refer to somebody else's authority. He didn't refer to somebody else's argument. He spoke directly as one from God. And now, Mark doesn't record for us a lot of what Jesus said in his teaching. Mark mostly points us towards the power and the person of Christ. But if you look at the other synoptic gospels, you can see like in Matthew 5, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear him say, You have heard it said, but I say to you. The scribes, the rabbis... The other guys, they said all this over here. And they would. They would add oral tradition on top of God's law. God's law would say that you're not supposed to ordain yourself too much. You're not supposed to draw attention to yourself. And so these dudes would sit around and argue about, okay, well, you need fake teeth. What kind of material can you use? Can you use wood? Is that okay? Sure. What about bone? Is bone okay? Yeah. Silver? Probably not. God says that you can't do work on the Sabbath. Well, how far is work? How how far can you walk and have it not be work? Is tearing toilet paper work? For them, apparently, it was. They added this tradition onto this, and that's not the way Jesus spoke. What Jesus would say is, you've heard it say. What he's saying is, those dudes are saying, don't listen to them. You've heard it said that my father is like this. He's not. He's like this. You've heard it say that you please my father by doing this. You don't. It's this. He came with the authority of God, anointed in the Holy Spirit, and spoke only the words that God gave him to speak. So he spoke in a way that would just challenge everybody that was there. Who could possibly speak these words of God? Who could possibly speak with such authority? Who could possibly not look to somebody else to bolster their argument? Who could possibly not look to sway the crowds? He would say it and it became truth because he is truth, the author of truth. This is challenging to people in that day. It's challenging to people today. You speak absolute truth from God's word, you speak absolute truth from the authority of God's word, people will despise you, not even because they disagree with your argument, but because you say it with such confidence because you say it as if there is such thing as truth and that's exactly the way that jesus spoke these people could not stand that he spoke in this way the power the authority behind his words truly the word had become flesh the word stood in their midst and he didn't need to ask permission he didn't need anybody to take a vote he didn't rely on consensus to determine whether truth was truth he spoke as one with authority and the people they stood amazed no one had ever spoken like this and it wasn't just authority in his words We see that it's not just authority in his preaching and his teaching there in the synagogue. We read in John 5, 27, he had authority to execute judgment. He had authority over sickness. He had authority over sin. He would be given authority over the church. Revelation 17, he had authority over the earthly kings. 1 Corinthians 15, he had authority over death. John 1, 12, he had authority to make children of God. John 10, 18, he had authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. John 17, 12, he had authority to grant eternal life. Truly, all authority in heaven on earth was given to him. There was nothing that was outside the authority of Jesus Christ. He never needed to ask permission that all the world would know that Jesus is Lord and he had all authority. There was nothing that was outside the scope. There was nothing that was outside of his reach. We sing here this morning this song about the great I am about the demons trembling. We're going to talk in a minute about demons and who they are and why they had a good mind to tremble. We need to never get it twisted church. No matter what the news tells you no matter what your own heart tells you, no matter what a doctor's report tells you, no matter what your bank account tells you, no matter what your marriage tells you, no matter what all this world tells you, there is nothing that's outside, outside the authority of Jesus Christ. So that we turn to him and we trust in him at all times, even when it looks like everything's going to hell around us. At all points and at all times, we know that we trust in him, the one with ultimate authority. Verse 27 says, They were amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Yes, yes it is. These dudes had twisted themselves up in knots trying to find a way to get back to God. Remember now, they had had a long season of silence. No prophet speaking on behalf of God. And so they said, well, let's just fill this space. You know, people don't like empty air space, right? You ever sit down to supper with somebody and just sit there quietly? It's creepy. People don't like it. So we're just going to fill this space. God's not talking, so we're going to talk. And so they just added laws upon laws upon laws and here comes this Jesus, he's talking about a light yoke and an easy burden. He's talking about a relationship and not a bunch of religion. He's not talking about laws, he's talking about trust, he's talking about faith. He's declaring that he is the only way to God. This is new, this is groundbreakingly new. Now don't get it twisted, there were people that saw the law and it pointed them to faith. We're not saying that everybody was lost before Christ, certainly not. The law did reach its appointed, appointed purpose in the lives of some people. But there were so many others. They just mourned for this day, they longed for this day when somebody would tell them there was something different. We're surrounded in a world full of people that feel like that. They know that if, if there is a God, surely he hates me. If there is a God, surely he has nothing for me. If there is a God, there's no way I could possibly know him and please him. And then you come with this message, this message of incredible authority. says, no, you can. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth of what Jesus was teaching. Stop trying so stinking hard. Stop tying yourself up in knots. Trust in the gospel i'm the gospel believe in me that's the message that he's preaching and they stand amazed at this That salvation is only found in him and doesn't it make sense right right if you're held captive under this under this this fear of death and, and slavery to sin and you know that hell and the grave are what awaits you in this why wouldn't you trust the one that's got authority over all those things that's his message we continue in verse 23 And immediately, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. It says immediately. I believe that means immediately. At that moment there on that Sabbath in the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit. Now, unclean spirit here doesn't mean like that there was some, his personal spirit was somehow sullied with a particular sin. It's talking about, Luke calls it an unclean demon, which is weird. Like, I don't know that there's clean demons, but he he calls it an unclean demon. So clearly he's talking about a man that is possessed. He's possessed by a demon. And so... I get it, right? Like like today, some preacher gets up and starts talking about demons. Are you going to Sunday school and you all got that one whack whacked out guy that just wants to always talk about demons and you just shut down, right? Because you think about demons and immediately your your, your mind goes to like AM radio after dark, right? You're thinking like coast to coast with George Norrie, right? Like this lady that this lady that calls in and she's convinced that her favorite cat's possessed by a demon, and that's why she's got to go out of the house in her pajamas or whatever, and it's, it's just, it's, we don't, we don't like talking about these things, and so we've just, all that the world knows about the spiritual world, about demons, about these things, they learn from whack jobs and, in and movies. It's like everything else that makes us uncomfortable, like sex. We just hand it over to the world and say, here, will you teach our kids about this then? It makes us real uncomfortable. So if the people has this unholy, this unbiblical idea of something that's apparently pretty critical. We see it all throughout the Gospels. So I'm asking you to stay with me today. I promise you I'm only going to teach you what I find in the Bible. But if the Bible sees fit to say it, don't you think you need to know it? And so we see here that there's, there's this man. Clearly that there are demons, and, and it's, it's interesting because, because we're not the only ones, right? We, we, we ignore the, the existence of demons. We ignore the spiritual. Either we go too far into it or we completely ignore it. And, and the Bible tells us there was people back in that day, the Sadducees. You remember that name, the Sadducees? Acts three eight tells us that they believed that there was no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits. But dear friends, we serve a God who is Spirit. And man is one that is made in his image. We, too, are spirit. Go back to the garden and the formation of man. We read in Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. One of my favorite things to teach children. Who, uh, Clay, you remember this? You remember this, Clay? We would, we would talk about building a man out of dirt. You remember this? We'd talk about a dirt man. You don't? Don't shake your head. We'd make a man out of dust. And then God would lean down and he would breathe into him. And I would tell the kids, what happens when Mr. Josh breathes? (laughs) Stinky breath. What happens when God breathes? Life His spirit. And this man that would otherwise be but dust. Now he becomes spirit like God is spirit. And that we're not just spirit now, that we're spirit for all eternity. That while there will come a day when our body shall return to the dust, our spirit doesn't die. That our spirit will live on forever we're spiritual beings created in the image of God, but that we're not the only spiritual beings that God has created. If you go back again to our, our reading in Nehemiah, you remember that prayer in Nehemiah that we read for, for ages and ages and ages? At the beginning of that prayer in Nehemiah 9, 6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heavens, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them, and you pr- preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You have flashbacks? He created everything, the heaven of heavens, the visible, the invisible, and part of the invisible was his holy angels. Genesis 1.31, we see that by the end of the creation story, by the end of Genesis, we don't know when the angels were created, but we know that by the end of Genesis, by the end of the creation of this physical earth that we see, the angels had also been created. Genesis 1.31, and God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. So sometime before the end he had done this, but sometime between the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, things went sideways for some of the angels. Again, we don't know exactly when, but we can read right here that Genesis, at the end of Genesis 1, God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 2, 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Then by the time we get to Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And just in case you're confused, that serpent is Satan. We read about him in Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his, his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This was the one that we see in the wilderness tempting Jesus. This is the one that we see tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, the evil serpent satan that is thrown down it says along with his angels those are the demons that they were thrown down why was he thrown down why was he kicked out of heaven i think isaiah points to that we read isaiah 14 12 through 15 they're talking about babylon here but i think this is a message about what happened in heaven when lucifer was thrown down how you are fallen from heaven O day star the new king james version says lucifer O day star son of dawn. how you are cut down to the ground you are laid the nations low You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Did This man, Lucifer, this angel, this bearer of light, that he he attempted. He aspired to make himself higher than God. He aspired to be worshipped. That's all he ever wanted was to be worshipped like God, wanted to be honored like God. Contrast that with what Jesus did in coming to earth. Setting aside his right to be honored as God. Setting aside his right to be glorified in this moment. Setting aside his right to act in his own will. While Lucifer, while Satan is constantly clamoring for that. That's why he is cast down. He's cast down to hell kicking and screaming while Jesus comes of his own accord. While Jesus comes willingly. While Lucifer comes to deceive and kill and lie and destroy. Jesus comes to lay down his own life to save. And yet that's what we see here with these angels. These angels that have fallen, that's who they are, and they're given authority for a time. Scripture refers to them as the gods of this world, the prince of the power of the air. They're given authority while here for a while to deceive men. They truly are the rulers of this generation. They're being cast to earth. They they set about their purpose in destroying anything that God does, anything that would draw people to God, anything that would draw people away from worshiping him and towards worshiping the true and living God. John 8, 44 says this, The devil was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's working desperately to blind the eyes of believers, to hold captive the unbelievers through lies and deceit. That's his purpose in all this. The killing, the stealing, the destroying. The purpose is to prevent God from being worshipped. To prevent captives from being set free. From prevent, to prevent people from believing in this gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they know how this story ends. They know that casting them, them down to earth and giving them authority, that wasn't the end of the story. They know well that Revelation 20, 1 through 3, and then I skip to verse 10, goes like this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over to him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Then verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet. They were tormented there day and night forever and ever. They know. They know that that's the end of this thing. But they also know that Jesus has promised not to come back until the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So as we discussed some months ago, their tactic is very straightforward. Keep the gospel from being spread to the ends of the earth. Because they know that the moment that happens, the moment the church does the thing that we've been called to do, you ever wonder why evangelizing is so hard? You ever wonder those times when you have to really get your get your nerve up to go and share the gospel with somebody, and then something happens on that very day—flat tire, discouragement. It's because they're going to do everything they can to keep you from sharing the gospel. Because if you share the gospel, somebody else might share the gospel, and this thing might just reach the ends of the earth. It's not because we don't have the resources. It's not because we don't have the knowledge. It's not because we don't have the desire. It's because we're in the middle of real spiritual warfare. They're going to do everything they can to keep this from happening. And so they're there, and they're, they're, they're tormenting. They're tormenting believers. They're enslaving non-believers. This is the work of Satan and his, and his demons. Now, we don't read a lot about, nearly as much about demons in the Old Testament. We don't read about possessions in the Old Testament. You don't read the word possession anywhere. It talks about someone having an unclean spirit. But you don't, you don't read about it nearly as much in the Old Testament. There's, there's those few cases. There's a case of Saul, right? And it talks about this unclean spirit that's tormenting him, and then David would come and play music for him, and then the spirit would leave, but then it would come back. And so I don't really know what that is exactly, a possession. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought through it enough. Um, but we know that the demons were there. They had been cast down to earth. They didn't have anywhere else to go. And we read, and Moses talks about him in Deuteronomy 32, 16 through 17. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. I'm not God. They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. He's saying here that you you don't have to sacrifice pigs to Satan. You don't have to call on the name of Satan. You don't even have to listen to rock and roll records backwards to worship demons. That the worship of demons, the sacrifice of demons, is following after gods that are not gods. False gods, the god of sex, the god of relationship, the god of money. Any God that is not God that you give your life over to, that's honoring of demons. That's worshiping the demons. That's what we see here that Moses is calling the people to. Listen, they weren't running around going, Hail Lucifer. They were just worshiping themselves in their bellies, in their own ways. He says that's to worship the demons. That's to play into the hands of the demons. And then Jesus comes along and we see demonic activity like really nowhere else because this was such a critical time. There's so much change here, and so we see the demons, they're really re- revolting, they're really acting out, because typically they would have, these demons, they wanted to be sneaky, right? They, they, they wrap themselves in light, they try to, to be angels of, of, of light, right? They try to, to blend in, they try to, to fly under the radar. They don't want to be outed, they don't want to be seen, they don't want to be known, and yet when Jesus shows up, it becomes very difficult for them to do this. They're just trying to blend in. We shouldn't, we shouldn't find it surprising, that a man possessed with a demon would find himself there in a synagogue if your goal was to keep the gospel from being proclaimed if your goal was to keep people away from god if your goal was to make sure people didn't honor and respect and obey and worship god wouldn't you do all that you could to infiltrate that place so i want you to know that on sunday mornings at 8 30 we go down the fellowship hall and we pray and every week one of the things we pray about is that there would be a limit to distractions because the demons want distractions And I'm not telling you that your cell phone is a demon. And I'm not telling you that your your bladder is possessed. But I'm telling you, the demons love it when you get up and go potty in the middle of a sermon. And they love it when your cell phone goes off. Because they want to do anything they can to distract from the word of God being proclaimed. The same gospel that Jesus was preaching in that day. How can I keep this from being done? Can I distract? Can I discourage? The thoughts that you have sometimes during worship. This is not in my sermon. One of the things that has occurred to me as a pastor, Satan wants desperately for you not to be able to listen to me. He wants you to distrust me. He wants you to dislike me. so that you can't hear his word coming from my mouth. I'm hard to like sometimes. I'm sinful and I'm broken, just like all the rest of you. There's yet to be a perfect pastor, but I want you to know that Satan and his demons laugh all the way to the bank. If he can so hamper our relationship, that he can prevent you from hearing his word because I am the deliverer of that word. So it should be no surprise that we see possessed man here trying to do everything that he can to distract, to discourage what it is. And we're not told that this man, we're not told exactly how this plays out in this man's, at this man's life, but we do know that these demons, they just can't resist. They can't remain undercover at this moment. They've got to react because darkness can't stand to be around light. You see Job, a, a righteous man, as he falls down and he despises himself in the, compared to the holiness of who God is, compared to the righteousness of who God is, he despises himself. How much more must, must these demons, as they stand before this, 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 this perfectly righteous man, they stand here knowing that he's come to destroy their works. They can't help but just to screech out and to react. And so we see this man under this abnormal influence of the of the spirits, and again, we don't we don't know exactly the way it played out, but we see other instances where, like in Matthew 17, where the kid is he's mute and he's blind. There's a in, in, in Mark in Mark 5, there's a man that's naked and he's he's supernaturally strong. Matthew 8, he's speaking through the vocal cords. Here we see him speaking through the vocal cords of this person, or Matthew 17, the boy that's falling into fire into water, and so. There's these there's these physical manifestations, these obvious signs, and so people they tend to look backwards on these things and they go, you know what? Those people were just stupid. They just didn't understand medicine, right? The dude was just epileptic and so he would fall out. The person just had a creepy voice, or he had a, right there was they 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 explained these things away. But you're gonna see in the weeks to come that Jesus would go out and he would talk about healing people with physical infirmities and casting out demons. These people weren't stupid. They understood the way that anatomy worked. maybe not to the inside-out degree that we do, but they understood what it meant for somebody just to be sick and somebody to be possessed. Clearly, this was something extraordinary for the people to know what was going on there. We also don't see that Demons only possess the most wicked of sinners. I think sometimes we have that idea, right? That demons would only come in and they would possess just the most unholy, the most unrighteous. Only people that would ask for it, right? You have to ask for a demon. You've got to say this right backwards prayer and then somehow a demon can come into you. But you'll see here that Jesus, in, in, in the book of Matthew, that this man comes to him and he tells him, look, my son is having all these problems. Surely this boy was not the most filthy of sinners in all the land. So I don't, I don't see any evidence here that demons only come and possess people that are the most unholy. And so that leads us to a question, and people often ask this. Somebody asked this on Wednesday night, and I hadn't really formulated all of my thoughts at that time, but, but the question is, can a demon possess a believer? The answer is, I don't, I don't think so, right? Because we've been crucified with Christ, therefore we no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. Scripture also tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement as the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. These idols are demons. The demons are those that clamor for the worship of God, and we've been crucified and filled with the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus Christ now living in us. I don't see any place for demons to come within us. doesn't mean they can't influence us. They certainly do. We do, after all, live in a world that's under their control. But at the same time, I don't believe that we can be possessed. I also need to tell you that I don't see any evidence in Scripture that every time Jesus freed somebody from a spirit every time an unclean spirit was cast from somebody we don't see that equated with salvation we don't know what happened to all these people typically the encounters that we read it's about jesus showing his dominance over the spirit we don't know there's like mary magdalene we know that mary magdalene who certainly was a follower of christ she was one of the first ones to see the empty tomb we know that she had seven demons within her that were cast out and so we know we don't know that it happened right at that time So we don't necessarily see evidence in Scripture that every time Jesus frees somebody from a demon, that immediately they are saved, or that constitutes salvation. In fact, if we read Matthew 12, 43 through 45, you read this. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. That's the person. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order, and then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. The last state of the person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. I think what Jesus is talking about, the whole point to that isn't necessarily to give us some inside scoop on demon possessions, but he is talking about something he knows about. And it seems to me what he's saying is there's a man, and he's been freed from this evil spirit, and then he cleans his act up. He finds religion. He sweeps his floors. He dusts his baseboards, but not filled with the Holy Spirit, there's just room. And he comes back and he brings his buddies, and things are worse than they had ever been. I think that's what he's showing us here, that being freed from a spirit doesn't necessarily mean that person is saved. I can't imagine somebody being freed of a Holy Spirit and not choosing to follow after Christ, but we're not proving that for sure, so we don't know. Most folks, though, we don't lie under the power of this kind of abnormal power, this kind of possession of a Holy Spirit. Most of us, we feel much more subtle influences from demons, discouragement, lies, doubt, these, these touches, these touches, these effects of living in a fallen world, of living in a world that's been given authority of the demon. We read this in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But these are spiritual battles that we battle. But at the same time, we don't blame everything that goes wrong on demons. We're not called to look around every corner and try to find a boogeyman around every corner. Every time your tire goes flat, that wasn't necessarily a demon. Every time you sin, that wasn't necessarily a demon. James says this about sin, James 1, 14 through 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. We sin because we love to sin. Because it's our desire to sin. Because we love filth. Because sinning is fun or nobody would do it. And that God isn't the one that tempts us. And often we're tempted by our own evil desires. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the Screwtape Letters. I haven't talked to you about the Screwtape Letters in a while. I haven't recommended it to you, so this is your obligatory. Please go read the Screwtape Letters. It's so good. It's not the Bible, but it's stinking good. And so you read in there, and he says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. The people that act as if there is no spiritual world, they can use that. The people that are always running around looking for the devil around every corner, they can use that too. It's not our job to always be looking out for the demons. We're going to talk in a minute about how we're to relate to these things. We're going to talk in a minute about what our tools are, how we're to fight back. How we're to respond when we think that we're being under, under attack by the devil. But ultimately, we're not to blame everything on the devil. Romans 16, 19 says this. I want you to be wise as to that which is good and innocent as to that which is evil. We're to be wise about the things of God. We're to be wise about those things that are good. Listen, we need to know whatever scripture says about demons. We need to know how to fight back. We don't need to go headlong into studying our, our, our life, pouring our life into figuring all we can about demons. Let's be wise about the things of God. Whatever God tells us about demons, we will know. We don't then need to go running off rabbit trails trying to figure out if everything is a demon possession. Trying to name all the demons. Trying to figure out the powers of all the demons. My wife is on a, is on a uh, I think it's a Facebook, man, is it a Facebook page, that pastor's wife thing? Yes, okay. So she's on, a, she's on a Facebook page for pastor's wives, and that's every bit as nerdy as it sounds. <laughs> but I think that being called to be a pastor's wife is a... Is a very peculiar thing, probably like being a coach's wife sometimes, right, Chuck? Very peculiar thing. And so, she's on there, and apparently they don't screen for wackadoo's because there are some. And there's some on. They're, they're, she'll tell me about these people. And they go into this, and they always are talking about the, the spirit of Jezebel. The spirit of Jezebel. the spirit of Jezebel has possessed this lady because she just run around with short skirts on. And I man, the spirit of Jezebel must have hold of this dude because he's always questioning my husband's sermons. Maybe your husband just can't preach. Maybe the lady just likes short skirts. Listen, Jezebel's a real lady in the Old Testament. And she was certainly under the influence of demons, as is the rest of the world. And she certainly chose to play along with that. She gave in to her temptation. She acted in evil ways. And is it possible that the same demons that tempted a Jezebel would tempt us today? Absolutely, surely. They've not yet been destroyed. They're still around. They're still doing the same old tricks. But we don't always need to blame everybody that disagrees with us. Everybody doesn't act the way we want them to act. Everybody that acts in sin that's different than yours, oh, that's a demon. That guy's got a demon. Get the holy water. Start dancing. Start cutting yourself. Start chanting. That's not the picture here. That the demons do have real influence in this world, and they are tempting us at all places. But you'll also notice that Jesus, and as much as we see Jesus encountering demons, and as much as we see this, 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 this outpouring of abnormal activity of the demons in the New Testament, you'll notice that neither Jesus nor the apostles gave us a whole lot of instruction about this stuff. Like, they weren't constantly telling us. They were telling us to flee from sin. They were telling us to guard our heart. They were telling us to cling to the Word of God. They were telling us to love the body. They didn't give us just a ton of instructions about what are you supposed to do with demon, demon possessions because ultimately they knew that wasn't going to be a real normal part of our life. You'll hear people that they graduate school and they look backwards and they go, you know, I thought I was going to be on fire a lot more because they were always talking about stopping, dropping, and rolling. And I'm not caught on fire once. Jesus knew it wasn't going to be a normal part of our life, that we were living in a world that was under the power of the evil one. We knew that we were going to encounter temptations from these demons, from these devils. But that ultimately there was another plan for this, another focus for us. And so you'll, you'll see that constantly their call on our lives is, is one of holiness, one of righteousness. And so you'll see that this man here, I need to, need to wrap this up. So this man here, he's got, a, he's got an unclean demon, and Jesus walks in and he immediately reacts. He can't even help it. He just immediately reacts and he screeches out. But that's not enough because if Jesus is the true eternal king if Jesus has truly come to set captives free If Jesus has truly come to do this work that he says he's come to work to usher in the kingdom to win To win back captives that they too can be citizens of the kingdom. He's got to overcome these demons He's got to overcome this temporary authority. He's already shown in the wilderness that he himself can overcome But what about somebody else? What about somebody else that's uncommitted? He didn't just come to free himself. He was already free. He came to free others Even those that are possessed by demons, can he free them? And so the demon cries out, what have you to do with us? This is verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, the apostles didn't yet know. The scribes, the other leaders, they didn't know. But these angels, they knew. They'd been in heaven worshiping him at one time singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. they have been worshiping there around the throne before they got too big for their britches and they got cast down. They knew exactly who it was that they stood before. You'll notice they call his name. First, it's meant to degrade him, Jesus of Nazareth. Because remember, nothing good comes from Nazareth. But then they call him the Holy One of God. This is, this is not meant to be flattery, it was the truth. But they also thought that perhaps by saying his name, they could gain some power over them. That knowing someone's name, knowing the fullness of someone's name and who they were, they thought perhaps they could, they could gain some power for themselves by doing this. A little like your mother calling all three of your names perhaps it's bit to catch your attention. So they thought they could catch his attention. They thought that they could gain some advantage over him. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing in him, it like it, it throws him down, convulsing him and carrying out the loud voice, it comes out of him. It was not yet time for Jesus... Full identity to be known. It's one of those first instances where he hushes people. You know, sometimes he would, he would, he would heal people and he'd tell them, shh, not, it's not time yet. It's Not time yet. Tell them his angels, it's not time yet. Get my name out of your mouth. Shut up and come out of that man. And he just does it. He just does it. These demons obey God better than we do. He says go and they go. We're the only ones that rebel. The ocean stops where he tells it to stop. The mountains go where he tells them to go. The demons flee when he tells them to flee. And we go, I got better ideas. It's only us. So we see that he tells them to go, and they immediately they take off. They know there's no chance to repent, right? Because he didn't spare his angels. There's no opportunity to repent. This gospel that he was preaching, this good news that he was preaching, it wasn't good news to them. It meant destruction for them. And they hated this message because they knew that this was the message that was freeing people from their father's hand, from Satan. The same message he was preaching, it was revolting to them. It was death to them. It was destruction to their evil father. But when he tells them to go, they have no choice. And you see the power in his word, and they screech with terror. So what do we do with this? What are we to do knowing that there are, in fact, demons around us? That there are, in fact, demons that are destined. They know they can't get within you. They know that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. They know they can't lead you to hell. What can they do? They can discourage. They can distract. They can tempt. They can lie. They can do much. But what do we do with this then? James 4, 7 says this. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Everybody, everybody loves to quote. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But they conveniently leave out the first part. Submit yourselves therefore to God. We're to submit to God in all things. We don't don't deal with demons in our own authority. You have no authority apart from whatever Jesus Christ has. We like to bolster ourselves. Is is this this royal priesthood? Yes. Children of God? Yes. The bride of Christ? Yes. Hands and feet of Christ? Yes. And we try to clamor for that authority in our own power. We try to come over there and, and act as if we've now got some authority completely vested or completely separated from who God is, separated from who his son Jesus Christ is. We start declaring these pronouncements that God never proclaims in his word of riches and wealth and healing and all that. You'll notice that when he sends out his apostles, in Matthew 10, I think it is, he sends out his apostles, these people entrusted with very specific authority. He says, I'm giving you the authority to go out and heal. I'm giving you the authority to cast out demons. Because it was a very special time when these demons were revolting. They'll do this again in the end of the days, right? The Bible tells us in the end, there's going to be another boom in activity much like this. But our job is to rest in who God is, to submit ourselves to God. It's humility. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. How do you resist him? Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This isn't talking about some specific prayer. This isn't talking about some specific verse that you claim. This isn't talking about some, some specific dance that you do. This is you stand firm in your faith. What chased these demons from this man? There's the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we stand in that same truth. We live by that same truth. Talks about a life of just persistence. This isn't talking about specific conflicts. You'll notice Jesus didn't go around seeking out these demons. It's that he was going and preaching the gospel. He was going and ushering in the kingdom of God, and they couldn't stand it. And so the the picture here is one of just sober-mindedness, just a constant lifestyle, not just suiting up for battles every day suiting up every day because you don't know what today holds you don't know what tomorrow looks like dear friends in a room this size there's somebody tomorrow is going to be a bad one and you don't even know it yet you're gonna get that news you wanted most desperately never to hear things are gonna go sideways in a real hurry you think you're on cloud nine right now and you're going to be laid low tomorrow so you suit up every day every single day you cling to that gospel you don't wait until you're in the pit I read to you, I'm reading the message. I don't ever read the message, but I'm reading the message today for Ephesians 6. So take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so you'll be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that you will walk away from and forget about it in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get. Every weapon God has issued so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation. They're more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential to the ongoing warfare. Pray hard, pray long. Pray for your brothers, pray for your sisters. Keep your eyes open and keep keep uh, keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. Do you see the community in this? Do you see the community in this? But do you see your weapon? I asked you last week to look up a text in your Bible because I wanted to make sure you knew how to wield your weapon. I I wanted to make sure that you even knew where your weapon was. Dear friend, do not lay down your sword. I beg you with everything that is within me. There's nothing I'm going to ever say from this pulpit that's going to replace the word of your living Father. This is your sword. This is your everything. You were in a real war. And this war is not some afternoon contest. This war is for keeps. If we were to take this word and we were to carry it, you would never lay down your sword if you knew you were in war. Not to bathe, not to sleep, not to anything. You would carry that sword with you everywhere you went. You would learn how to swing it. You would learn how to use it. And you would use it in defense of your brothers and sisters. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are enough when we are not. Father we confess that if left to our own devices Father we would just skip on merrily towards the demons that our flesh desires wickedness our flesh desires to be worshipped. that what we set out to do here in this church it is not what comes natural to us it's only when empowered by your spirit So, Father, we pray that you would move amongst us now as we sing these songs of worship. We pray that they would be pleasing to your ears, and we pray that they would change our hearts. For it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.